0: Well, there's a scientific study done, all right, that predicts attractiveness in men. Okay, now listen up the front row here. Now, there are going to be two groups of people here, right? People who believe in this scientific study and people who don't. Now, is this scientific study 100% accurate? I'll let you guys decide, right? But this study predicts that if a man's ring finger is longer than his index finger, then it, then it's, then he's likely to have a more attractive face. Now again, now again, <laughs> if you're looking on, if you're online, we've got everybody looking at their, their fingers. Now again, is this 100% accurate? Is this 100% accurate? Well, if you're a guy and your ring finger is longer than your index finger, then yeah, maybe. If you're looking online, everyone's still checking their fingers. <laughs> now, again, you, you can either believe this study or you don't believe this study, right? But what if it's true, right? Now, near the end of the 18th century, uh, the Western world, right, they first encountered the duck-billed platypus. And we've got a photo of something that I drew earlier today. <laughs> nah, I'm joking. I didn't, I didn't draw that. Uh, but the platypus is a native Australian animal, right? It has fur all over its body. Uh, it's the size of a rabbit and it has webbed feet, right? But since it lays eggs, it reproduces like a reptile, right? When the skin of a platypus was for, first brought to Europe, uh, people were absolutely amazed, right? Was it a mammal? Was it a reptile? The platypus seems so strange. That even with the physical evidence of the skin and the testimony of the people, of the witnesses, our people dismissed it as a sham. But it wasn't until a pregnant platypus was taken across over to, to London for observers to see with their own eyes that they started to believe that the platypus actually existed. And until this time, the greatest scientists, the greatest thinkers right in the Western world, they, they didn't... Uh, They didn't believe in the existence of a platypus, right? The initial problem was that it didn't fit into how people saw the world. So they rejected it and they reached a verdict, even though the weight of evidence said otherwise. What if the existence of the platypus was true? Similarly, right, there are two groups of people here, People who believe in the resurrection of Jesus and people who don't. And if you're in this place and you call yourself a Christian, then I want to encourage you with the truths of the resurrection. And if you're here and you don't believe in the resurrection, or you have questions about the historical validity of the event, then I want to challenge you today. Be curious, right? Be curious about why no other event in all of recorded history has reached so far across national, ethnic, religious, linguistic, cultural political, geographic borders, right? Be curious why this event, right, after this event, be curious why after this event, the message of Jesus spread across the world with success, right, without any political power, without any military power. Because at the end of the day, we need to choose whether the resurrection is true or not, right? That's our choice to make. And if we choose not to believe, and Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we have everything to lose. If we choose to believe the truth of the resurrection, we have everything to gain. God, Jesus, eternal life, and way more. Our passage today is from Mark 16, to 8 uh, If you've got your Bibles, open up to Mark 16, to 8 uh, If you don't have your Bibles, uh, it's on the big screen at the back. Uh, verse 16, uh, verse one I mean, chapter 16, says this: "When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, "Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb?" Verse four. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Amen. The book of Mark just ends like that. Just like that. It's a bit of a weird way to end a book, right? Especially because the other Gospels don't actually end like that. It doesn't end with courage or great hope. But it ends with trembling and fear and confusion. And what we're going to see is that the way this story ends, it's actually one of the reasons we can believe this story is true. You know, if someone was trying to uh, make up a story, they wouldn't exactly end it like this. You know, some people actually tried to add alternate endings to the book of Mark. And you can see some of these in some modern translations. Out of all the religions and faiths in the world, right, Christianity is the only faith that traces its origin back to a particular event. One particular day in history. One day there was no such thing as a church, and then suddenly there was. There was suddenly a group of people who believed in the resurrection of Jesus and even suffered the most extraordinary things for His sake. You know, without the resurrection, the Christian faith has no hope to rest on. It is the core of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus. And while many people reject the historical validity of the resurrection of Jesus, it's, it's not a claim that can be true for me and not for you. You know, the tomb was either empty on the third day or it was occupied. There is no middle ground in this. And if Jesus is not the Son of God, if He's not the one sent to redeem the world, the one who rose from the dead and appeared to His disciples, if Jesus is not all that, then He's a complete nut job right? C.S. Lewis says, says this. He says Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He was either crazy or the Christ. And so today, I want to help you understand that the resurrection isn't just good news, but it's also true news. And there are four specific things that we're going to look at today. Number one, the witnesses were women. Number two, the tomb was found empty. Number three, people were willing to die for their faith. And number four, there were multiple eyewitness accounts. Right? These are some historical facts that help us see that the resurrection is true. So number one, the first eyewitnesses were women. Verse 1 of chapter 16 says this, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Mark says that the empty tomb was first discovered by who? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Now, notice what all of these three people have in common, right? They're all women. Now, today, we might not notice something as small as that, but in ancient Israel, right, women were, were, were so low in status that they weren't, uh, they weren't regarded as credible witnesses, they weren't even allowed to give testimony in court. And if you committed like a terrible crime and the only witnesses were women, you would probably go free. How amazing is it then that, that Mark points out that the first eyewitnesses right, were all women. All the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all note that, the, that women were the first eyewitnesses. And if you're going to make up a story about Jesus' resurrection, uh, there was no advantage to having women be the first eyewitnesses. It would seriously undermine the credibility of the story. And the only plausible explanation for why all four Gospels said that the the first witnesses were women uh, is that it was women who found the tomb, and the tomb was found empty. Number two. Another reason why uh, we know that the resurrection really happened was that the tomb was found empty. Now, many people, many people argue that if Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb, then his followers must have stolen it or taken it. But that argument doesn't actually work. Because if you remember three days ago, uh, the disciples deserted Jesus. They were cowards. Right? They deserted Jesus. They were frightened for their lives. They were in hiding. Were they now suddenly bold because of the lies that they made up themselves? It just doesn't make sense. You know, Jewish history shows us that the stone at the entrance of the tomb, it could have weighed between one to two tons. Right? That's like trying to move a rhinoceros or a jeep jerky or a walrus or a baby whale right, one to two tons, and the stone was set inside a groove in front of the entrance so that it didn't fall over, and the groove was often like, sloped downhill so that the stone could be rolled down. The stone was also sealed with a Roman seal, right, and this was a sign of authentication, that the tomb was occupied uh, by the power and authority of Rome. If anyone was found breaking the seal, they would suffer the death penalty. And to add to that, the tomb was also, um, it had a Roman guard stationed. The Roman guard was anywhere between uh, four to 16 uh, people, governed by strict rules. Now, if a guard member fell asleep, uh, he would be beaten and executed. But it wasn't only him, but the whole 16-unit man. The tomb was secure, right? Even if the disciples somehow overpowered all the guards and broke the seal of the tomb, that leaves us with another question. Why would so many people die for their faith, right? Number three, this leads us to our next point. Would people leave their businesses, their careers, their homes, their families, go to the ends of the earth, Die horrible, gruesome deaths uh, to protect a lie. Does that make sense? This is a story I shared a bit uh, earlier in the. Uh, but uh, one of the early church leaders and early Christian writers who directly followed the apostles, right, was a bishop by the name of Polycarp, and I've mentioned this before. Uh, why was he named after a Pokemon? I don't know, uh, but. But the story about Polycarp's martyrdom, right, is, is pretty famous throughout church history. And the story is this, that in AD 155, right, uh, when persecution against Christians swept across the Roman Empire, okay, uh, the proconsul they found, arrested, and brought Polycarp to a public arena for execution, okay? Uh, he was surrounded by thousands and thousands of spectators, He was giving his final chance to recant. And they said to Polycarp, curse the Christ and live. That was his final thing, curse the Christ and live. And the crowd waited for the old man to answer. And this was his reply. It's pretty amazing. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme the name of my King and Lord. And with that, Polycarp became a martyr. He died for the gospel. Now, Polycarp is one of many stories of people willing to die for their faith. And people had opportunities to recant at any time, but they didn't. They continued spreading the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus, even though it cost them their lives. You know, the disciples could have told the whole world that they've just made up the resurrection. They could have told everyone, hey, I just made this up to avoid death. Instead, they made it clear that they'd rather die. They'd rather die than turn their backs on Jesus. N.T. Wright says this. He says, there were many messianic movements in the first century. In every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome as Jesus did. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming the hero had been raised from the dead. If you were following a would-be messiah, right, and that would-be messiah got crucified by Rome, you had two choices. Disband the movement or look for a new would-be messiah, right? But the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they went to their death claiming that Jesus had been resurrected. And that brings us to our last point. There were multiple eyewitness accounts. Multiple eyewitness accounts. Jesus' disciples had believed and claimed that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And the argument that arises from this statement is that the, the disciples were delusional. They had lost their, their minds. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that, that Jesus appeared to others as proof of the resurrection. Many people, right, who argue against the historical events of the resurrection, they suggest that, uh, that the early Christians hallucinated uh, the appearance of Jesus. But Paul claims that a crowd of more than 500 people saw him at one time. Justin Brealey, an apologist, he says this, Hallucinations uh, do sometimes occur when people lose loved ones. The people most likely to experience a grief hallucination are senior adults grieving the loss of a spouse. Approximately 50% do, often believing they hear or sense the person with them. However, only 7% of all senior adults grieving the loss of a loved one experience a visual hallucination of that person. It's also worth noting that people don't experience the same hallucinations. Most psychologists agree that mass hallucinations don't occur. Now, if the Romans could have produced the body, they would have. And it was this combination of eyewitness accounts, right? People seeing Jesus, people willing to die for their faith, the empty tomb. Right? These are overwhelming evidence of the truth of the resurrection. But it wasn't long before the followers of Jesus, they began to understand what was going on. Right? That it didn't just affect Jesus, but it affected them too. And the best analogy right, for, for what the first century followers would have felt is the movie The Sixth Sense. Has anybody seen The Sixth Sense? Yeah, If you haven't, it's a bit of a scary movie, so I'm warning you. Uh, but the pivotal moment in the movie is, is when this little kid tells Bruce Willis that he sees dead people. And these dead people, the little kid sees, they, they don't know that they're dead. Right? And the twist, the twist in the movie comes at the end. And once again, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry you came on this Sunday. <laughs> I'll just block your ears for, for 30 seconds. Um, But here's how it ends, right? Bruce Willis, he realizes at the end that he is one of the dead people. The whole time, he he didn't know. Now, similarly, right, the followers of Jesus began to piece together what was going on. That new life had begun at the resurrection of Christ. And they began to see the twist. They were transformed, not through inspiration, right, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the same realities, the same truths of the resurrection that the first century believers are discovered hold true for us today. Now, if all these historical facts about the resurrection are true, then what does this mean for us today? And it really means this one point, and it's this. It means that Jesus is who we claim to be. In John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can get to God the Father except by means of me. Jesus said, I'm the way. He didn't say, I'm a way, or I'm a good way, or I'm one of the ways. Jesus is the exclusive source of salvation. He's not a way, but the way. All roads do not lead to heaven. Pastor Rick Warren, I love this analogy that he uses. He says this, saying all roads get to heaven is like saying I can dial any phone number and get home. There's only one phone number you can call to get home. I'm pretty sure he thought about this in like the 1980s or 1990s. But in the book of John, right, Jesus makes these seven I Am statements. He makes these seven I am statements proclaiming who he is. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. And this is so significant because in the Old Testament, right, God revealed his name to Moses as I am. In Judaism, I am is actually understood as a name for God. So whenever Jesus made an I am statement, right, he's claiming that he is God. He's identifying himself as God. So in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. And in this chapter, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who have come to listen to him, right? But they've come for the wrong reason. Jesus says to them, whatever you're looking to for life, your job, money, power, fame, status, your studies, your family, your relationships, your children, that's what you're feasting on. That is your meat and that is your drink. That is your bread. That's what you're looking for to for substance. And if you find your life in, in things that perish, you will never be fulfilled. You know, Ultimately, none of those things will fill you because you need a life-giving solution for a need that goes beyond the physical. Jesus says, I have come not to bring bread. I have come to be the bread. I have not come to improve your life. I have come to be your life. To have me and and nothing else is to have absolutely everything. And Jesus says, the thing that you're currently looking to for life, the bread that you want, it won't actually fill you. And he says, turn from that and turn to me. And as soon as Jesus says that, the crowd walks away and they say, this is a hard teaching. You know, some of those who walked away had been with Jesus for over two years. They saw him do miracles. They did life with him. Yet they missed him. They missed the giver of life. I wonder how many of us are in this place just like the crowd I wonder how many of us look at the bread in our hands and we look at Jesus and we close our hands and turn around and say, I have all that I need here. I have all that I need in my job, in my addictions, in my relationships. If you're telling me, Jesus, that I need to let go of all this stuff, then I might walk away because that's not the life that I'm interested in. If that's you in this place, then then please hear me on this. The resurrection means that Jesus is the only bread that will break for you. Of all the breads out there, Jesus is the only one who breaks for you. Every other bread will perish. Every other bread will break you. It will leave you wanting. It will leave you broken. Jesus says, come to me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am what you're looking for. I am all that you need. I am enough for you. You know, the resurrection of Jesus, it means that that Jesus is everything that he claims to be. The bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life, the true find. In uh, June 20th of 2020, a couple of years ago, uh, it was a profoundly memorable time for me. Uh, My grandma, who was 98, passed away to be with the Lord. Uh, And as I look back and and as I think about her, I'm always reminded of the times when my brother and I were young. Right, growing up in Sydney, uh, my parents were first generation Korean immigrants. And like 99% of Korean immigrants, uh, they had to find work, right? Which meant they were working early hours and and late nights. And my grandma uh, not only took care of my brother and I, but all the other Korean children around our neighborhood whose parents were in the same situation. No extended family, no money. And so my grandma would would take care of like seven to ten neighborhood children. And I remember hearing the stories of how when we were little and... You know, I've told this story before, but I remember uh, my brother throwing things down the toilet, and my brother, not me, 100% not me. (laughs) You know, things like my dad's keys, my dad's wallet, um, toys, rice, (laughs) and my grandma would always go and fish them out with her hands. Uh, But June 20th is a date I'll always remember, you know, and I miss my grandma, and and I still think about it a lot, but it's also one of deep, deep gratitude. I'm so thankful to my grandma for the sacrifices that she made to take care of us. And if you've been loved by your grandparents, then it's truly a blessing, a massive blessing. And I believe that the moment my grandma took her last breath, she went to meet Jesus face to face. You know, when everyone passes from this life to the next, when we take our last breath, Jesus is the first and foremost person we will meet in heaven. But before you meet him face to face there, you have to meet him by faith here. You know, soon after the resurrection, Jesus' follows. they realize that when Jesus died on the cross, Right? It, was, it wasn't just Jesus' death, but it was their death too. They realized that on the third day, the greatest step in all of human history was taken. The stone was rolled away, and Jesus stood at the threshold of the tomb. And he took that first step that changed the whole world. So today, there is one step that we all need to take. And I want to finish with this story about a pastor's friend. This friend, uh, she spent a great part of her life uh, living far from God. And over time, she realized uh, the limitations of her her self sufficiency and her pride. And feeling like she needed more information about God before she would commit, uh, she spent a year studying about God, asking questions. She was trying to be perfect before she would commit. But it wasn't long before she realized that her issue wasn't a lack of information, right? But it was commitment. She had never actually surrendered her life to God. Because she knew that if Jesus had been raised from the dead, then that fact changes everything. So she decided she wanted to confess her sin and ask for forgiveness and start a new life. But she wanted to make this change really clear. So here's what she did. She went home. She stood in her kitchen, staring at the threshold right between her kitchen and her living room. And she said aloud, God, when I step across that line, I want you to know that I'm leaving my old life behind. I'm leaving behind my old sin. I want to be forgiven. I want to be your child. I want Jesus to be my forgiver and my friend and my leader. And she walked across that line. She said, that is the biggest step I have ever taken in my life. Because I entered into a relationship with God. And now when I have problems or questions or doubts, I remember that line. I remember that step. I remember that he is with me. The question for us is, have you taken that step? The story of the resurrection, it demands a response. It can't be true for me and not for you. There is no middle ground in this. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or his Lord. And if we choose not to believe in Jesus, and Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we have everything to lose. If we choose to believe in the truth of the resurrection, we have everything to gain. God, Jesus, eternal life, and more. Take that step today. It will be the biggest step you ever take in your life. Let's close our eyes in prayer.